I think the simplest thing this morning, and the enemy, what the enemy wants to do, I believe, with us is to make to, to make it such a hard thing. He wants he wants to make obedience to be a very hard thing for a Christian. That's what he, he wants to make it like it's hard. And, and try to convince us that uh, trying to, uh, trying, notice that trying to obey, and there isn't any trying in obedience, it's just receiving it. Right. It's just receiving the fact that Christ, as our life, as our, he's our life in Colossians 3 and verse 4. He's our all in Colossians 3 and verse 11. And Based upon that fact, based upon that fact, is extremely necessary. So when Mike brought up the uh, the word entreatable and uh, to be entreatable for the believer in Christ, it just simply means a will that's ready to receive. (laughs) That's what entreatability is. And there can be questions, and I know at times there can be questions, but the question can come from a source of irritation or suspicion. And we know that is not a question that God will not answer and that we're not ready to receive when we function in that. Because the reason for that is, is because in God's love, now, since the fact that God knows everything, right? And we've said this, we've been taught this through the word, that God knows everything. And when we consider the fact that, that God has always been, there's never been a time he hasn't been, he is himself eternal life. He, and that's when he gives eternal life to us through Christ. He's giving of himself when he gives his son and he is eternal life. And eternal life is that Greek word zoe, Z-O-E. It's a long E. And it's and literally means it had no beginning and will have no end. God's always been. He's always been only who he is. And his essential nature, character, and essence is love. And of course, with that, love, it, it obviously is justice, right? God is just. What kind of love? A just love. And what does that mean? That means that as long as God is has always been. He knows all things. And when did he start knowing everything? Well, as long as he's ever been. And that's why, and this is the reason for entreatability, we're going to see that, because God knows everything. And we know nothing as we ought to in 1 Corinthians 8, 2 and 3, you know. And we don't know it as we ought to. And that's 1 Corinthians 8, 2. But 8, 3 says... The ought there means that when my will is submitted and I'm entreatable, I can know at that point God loves me. Woo, boy, that's huge. That's 1 Corinthians 8, 3. And to know the love of God in Ephesians 3 and verse 19, that passes knowledge. And what that means, this, knowledge is, is, is important. But knowledge that doesn't enter into the experience through either irritation, some form of the flesh, or suspicion. And remember, there's no suspicion in love. God, God is not suspicious of anything. Well, he knows all things. And that's why in Isaiah 46 and verse 10, he declares the end from the beginning. The beginning of what? Uh, the eternal is. <laughs> and that's why in Acts 15 verse 18, known unto God are all what? His works. So what does God know about us? His works. And what do we know when we don't submit our will, even though we're positioned in Christ? What do we know? We know nothing as we ought to until we submit. And when we do, and I was thinking, I wrote these things down (laughs) this morning. And uh, I write, sometimes the nearest thing to me is so small, but the thoughts are coming so fast. (laughs) I grab these little things and I'm like, oh, so I don't forget it. You know, because, you know, that can be, that can happen very quick. Or sometimes, <laughs> like there were these paint chips, you know, there are these paint chips you get from the paint supply store. And for some reason, they're on my desk and God starts flying with this stuff. And I'm writing it on these small little paint chips. <laughs> and there's like 10 of them. <laughs> but the thought that God was given, and this is what makes it, so, so very necessary. 
I, I thought of this as, and I'm, what I'm saying is, um, the counsel that God is giving now through me, he gave to me, this is my, this is my personal counsel. That's what he was doing with me this morning. He was teaching me about trust. That's what he was teaching me. Again, and he was teaching me in a way that I have yet to experience because I have yet to grow in the grace and knowledge of that in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. So he, he, he said, okay, I want you to write this down. There is no trust without obedience. Um, wow. There's no trust without obedience. And there is no, but listen to this, there is no obedience without love. <laughs> there isn't. There just isn't. And so obedience has to do in, with the believer. First, even, even in the fact that we, we must always remember and be so thankful for this fact that even when Adam fell and, and as a result when he procreated, remember, humans, they procreate angels in Matthew 22 and verse 30. They don't. They were created all at once. An innumerable host of angels. They don't procreate. But Adam, when he fell, he procreated. He produced those that were after his fallen image. And before we receive Christ, what did we function in? This fallen image, an image that wasn't from God, and thereby a false image based upon a what? A lie that the enemy did in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. So, again, that's why the Bible makes it very clear to us. The Bible makes it very clear that, that we, are not, we are not children of love. We are loved by God, Right? But only God is love. <laughs> and only he can love us. And that love, okay, that is the active energy of his nature. Right? That's why it's called creator. And what does a creator do? He creates constantly. He's creating, right? And that's a beautiful thought that even goes into Ephesians 2 and verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Whose works? If they were good works, and good would, would only reside, and only does reside in God himself, in Exodus 34 and verse 6, if it does, then whose works are they? They're his works. His works that were done in the eternal mind of God because there was never, a, how do we say how, how do we say things like a moment in eternity? Because <laughs> a moment is time, you know. But so it's like okay. So in eternity, was ever the Son not the Lamb of God? Was he ever not that? He was always that. And Revelation thirteen verse eight makes it clear. The lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Well, the foundation of the earth would, would talk about creation. And before anything was ever created, God is. <laughs> He's eternal life. Now, here is these truths that are ours in Christ. They are way beyond the creature. They are fulfilled and only known through the Creator, and there's only one. Right? That, that's it. So, the fall, was that a result of the making of God? No, it wasn't. But here's the beautiful thing, that even when Adam fell, and we had this, we inherited this old sin nature. Now, to, to understand that, you get into Romans, the fifth chapter. You can see Romans, the fifth chapter, especially when you get into the teens of that chapter down to the end of it, you're going to see uh, that as a result, the result of being born with that sin nature. Psalm 51 and verse 5 says, We were conceived in sin and in iniquity did our mother bring us forth. <laughs> in Psalm 51 verse 5, we inherited this sin nature. But even... This, what we need to remember, and this is a beautiful thing, that even when Adam fell, did God take away the gift that he gave him of free will? 
No. He never took that away. He didn't take away free will, the ability to make choices. Yeah, bad ones or good ones, evil ones or those that are good. Now, in the fall, once we fell, and was there any good? If only good resides in God, would there be any good as a result after that fall? No, there's no good. That's why, do you remember the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 17, and Luke 18 and verse 19, when the rich young ruler came to him, and he said, what good master? Notice that? He, he said, good master, what should I do that I might inherit eternal life? <laughs> In other words, what, what can I get to give you who never even existed in your eternity. <laughs> what must I do to inherit it? And what could, what could he do? See, what he was doing, and this is what we do, when we as Christians that are positioned, placed in Christ, do when we function in the flesh. We reduce, down, we reduce Christ down to our level. And that's how we start conversing with him. And there's where all the doubt, the fear the worry, the self-made plans. And see, all this is the result of, and this is what God had me write down. He said, he said, Ed, you know what, you know what Satan does? He cannot touch, and we've said this before, sin, now that I have received Christ as my Savior, and now that we all have, can sin now touch my relationship with God? Sin cannot touch my relationship with God. Can't do it. But it can touch and does affect my fellowship with him. Because God cannot fellowship with sin. His eyes in Habakkuk 1 and verse 13 are so pure, he cannot look upon sin. So, so what Satan does is and we remember this verse has been coming up a lot lately in, in God's counsel to me. Now that we are in Christ, in Romans 8, 1, there's, no, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Now, if you see in any other translation, again, not to them that walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, you can cross, if that's in verse 1 of Romans 8, cross it all out. The only thing in the original Koine Greek New Testament is, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ, period. Period. Because if I believe that Christ crucified the old man in Romans 6, 1 through 6, that he did pay for all of my sins and cleanse my conscience in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2, and he did, based upon that blood, his blood, which is perfect holy blood, by the way, sinless blood, in Hebrews 9, 12 to 14, there's no question about it. His blood was way different than Adam's fallen blood, that nature, because in Leviticus 17, verse 11 and 14, the life of the flesh, the body, is in the blood. And him, he was that holy one formed in the womb of that 14-year-old peasant girl in Luke 1 and verse 35. And so... Here, what happens is this. Now, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Now, where does the condemnation appear then if it doesn't appear in our position? In the fourth verse in Romans 8. Because if you walk according, and walk just simply means you give, you replace the authority of God's love through Christ over you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and now you give the flesh the authority. You think you're your own authority in the flesh. And really, where did the flesh come from? Who would be fathering the experience in, in John 8 and verse 44 would be the father of all lies. That's what it would be. And, and it's very, very clear. So by the time that we understand that we don't, if we walk in the flesh, Right? We reap it. If we walk in the Spirit, we reap the Spirit, right? Those two in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 are contrary one to another. 
Notice that. So that you can't do the things that you would. So when I function in the flesh, okay, what, what, can I do the things of the Spirit? No, because the doing is, is the receiving in John 1, in James 1, verse 21 and 22. The doing there is the receiving. And the doing is the submission of the will. And that's what makes it so important. And so, when I walk according to the flesh, I reap the flesh. When I walk according to the Spirit, meaning under Him, His guidance, the Spirit, who takes the things of Christ in John 16, 13, and 14, and shows them unto me. That's why the Bible teaches us, and that's why we agree with the Bible, that the only theologian and scholar that there is is God the Holy Spirit. Because like can only be determined by like. God can only describe who he is and do it without error, without lie, without fault. Because in him, in Numbers 23 and verse 19, and in Hebrews 6 and verse 18, and in Titus 1 and verse 2, there's no lie in him. So when I function in the flesh and not in who I am in Christ, what do I function in? Who's daddying me? And John 8, verse 44, the father of all lies. And what does he do with these lies? In the, see, he can't touch. The enemy cannot touch my relationship with God. That's 1 John 5, 18. The B part of that verse says, the wicked one touches us not. He cannot touch it. Can't touch sin does not touch relationship. It affects fellowship, but it doesn't touch relationship. I may sin against God. I may. But it doesn't change my relationship with him because my relationship was based upon the finished work of Christ that only he could finish. And when he did, and I received it as an individual, that's brought out in the type, by the way, in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 4. Crystal clear, those types that each individual had to put their hand on that sacrifice. No one can receive Christ for you because no one has your particular will that God gave you. And that means that everything that Christ did, he did for us intimately and personally. Isn't that amazing when we consider that? And, th and then to be able to receive the love of God and that love that we receive from him actuates, energizes our love for him. Oh my God, what an amazing thing. That I can love God back? It's just, wow, what an amazing thing. But what Satan wants to do, and then you can see the result of the flesh walking in it. So if we walk in it in Romans 8 verse 4, we see the results in 5 verse 8. The results of it. We can't please God in the finality of it. Furthermore, the flesh, in Romans 8 and verse 7, it talks about it very, very clearly. Right? The flesh has enmity against God. You know what that's, listen, this is, this is unbelievable. And then God would still love us based upon my relationship in Christ. Even still love me, but does it reach my experience when I function in the flesh? But he still loves me. Malachi 3.6, I'm the Lord thy God, I change not. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He doesn't change his mind. Whatsoever God does in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 14, he does forever. Once we are in, in John 6, 37 and 39, no one can pluck us out of his hand in John 10, 28 and 29. You can't lose something that didn't have a thing to do with your own dessert. <laughs> oh boy, so amazing. So when we see that, when we see that word enmity, the flesh it has enmity, and when you study that word out, it means strong, settled thoughts and feelings and emotions of extreme, unchangeable hatred toward God. That's brought out in Genesis 6 and verse 5 at the fall. That's the fall, Genesis 6, uh, Genesis chapter uh, 6 
And then we have it in Genesis 8 and verse 21, 6, 5 and 8, 21 of Genesis, when he said, the thought of man outside of Christ, listen, the thought of us outside of Christ is only evil continually. It's only evil continually. And that means not just the thought, it's every purpose, design, plan, Everything is only continually evil. What cuts it off? Getting new life. The old being passed away in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 16 and 17. All things are new in him. We have this new life. He becomes this new life that's in us. Oh, that paid for all the sin and hatred that we had toward him. We said recently, as again, when I say we said recently, we're just it's the word of God. That's for all of us, and that the Holy Spirit has made, takes the written word, and when I'm entreatable with a will submitted, he makes it a life-giving force and power and energy. And boy, don't we need energy. Yeah, that comes from God loving us. And that comes from obedience. And sometimes we get weary and worn out because we're not obedient to that love that's already waiting to be gracious in Isaiah 30, 18, and to impart to us an amazing source of energy. And then that energy becomes active, and then it opens our eyes up to see purity, just things just like he does. He defines everything in the purity of his own nature that he's made us in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, partakers of that. Oh, my God. God, to, to partake of him who's always been. Of course, only in measure and for all eternity in Ephesians 3 and verse 19. To know the love of, of Christ that passes knowledge. Meaning we'll never come to the end of the depth and desire and intimacy of his love for each of us as individuals. Again, that's brought out in the hidden man and the white stone in Revelations 2 and verse 17. But so... Now we see, okay, so if we walk according to the flesh, right, then that's the enemy coming in and, and, and invading the experience. I'll tell you what he tries to do. And this is what God was, was telling me in his counsel towards me this morning. He said, Ed, Satan is trying to remake the old man in and through you through the flesh. That's what he's trying to do. That's what he tries to do with each of us. To remake the old man, and God's got to come in. Boom. And with so many, that's their Christian life. It's up and down. It's what we call the spiritual roller coaster ride. It takes a while to get up there. Ooh, you're up there, and then, oh, you're down. But thank God that even in the down times, in Psalm 139, 7 to 12, if, if, I, if I take the wings of the morning and enter into the heights with him, he's there. If I make my bed in hell, experientially now, there he is with me. There he is, and he's just waiting to be gracious to me because that's who I am in Christ. And so when there's no trust, when there's no trust, it's because there's no obedience. And when there is no obedience, oh boy, there's no experiencing love. And when, we don't, when we're not loved, when we're not loved by God, we don't have energy. That's what it means to be weak. You don't have energy. Let the weak say in Joel 3.10 and 2 Corinthians 12.9, let the weak say, I am strong. And boy, does he give us portions of strength constantly in Psalm 68 and verse 28. He has constant portions of strength for us. But who does he give it to? In James 4, 6, God resists the proud. God resists any remaking of the old man in the experience. The old man is dead, crucified as far as God is concerned in Romans 6, 1 through 6. He's crucified. And God's only view of me is in Christ. Isn't that odd? Even when I function in the flesh, God's view of me doesn't change because it wasn't based upon what I would do, but what his son finished 
as a result of propitiating God's love and justice, answering the sin question. And we must remember that in John 1 and verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin issue of the whole world of humanity. It's not talking about sins there. That's something that Jesus will pay for with, for only those that receive him as the payment. Otherwise, if he did, it would be him forcing his will on the will of others. And that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It just doesn't. And so, then, the option for me in my growth is, my will is going to submit to either the flesh or to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. To function in the flesh is to function under the power of evil. Listen, the power of evil is a lie. But it's powerful. But it's a lie. He can't, the, the, the principle of death for the believer in Christ, and that's what baptism is, by the way. It only deals with death. You look at that in the, in the epistles that, 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 that the risen Christ gave the apostle Paul. A baptism only has to do with death, and out of it comes life, the life that Christ is. But death doesn't touch us. That's why it says in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1, the day a good name is like precious ointment. Where, where did we get a good name? <laughs> you know, we get these good names, these good names, which has to do, and the name is descriptive of character all through the Old Testament and the New and that's that new stone that we have in Christ in Revelations 2 and verse 17. But in Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is like precious ointment. And the day of one's death, better than the day of one's birth. Why? Because we were born with a sin nature. But when we receive the fact that Christ died not only for us, but as us and paid for all of our sins, oh boy, when I received him, Boy, I have life. And now in Romans 6, 9, he that dies once in the death of Christ dies no more. And death is just the door to eternity, a face-to-face, undisturbed, undistracted, deep, intimate fellowship with him as an individual for all eternity. And the fellowship that we will have with all those others that are in heaven will be based upon the depth of the intimacy of the fellowship that we have with Christ personally. See, personal fellowship never takes the place of corporate, but it does enter into it based upon the principle in John 17, verse 11, 21, and 22 of oneness. And that's what he's made the body one in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There's one body of Christ. And this is what I love this morning because only God's love, only his love, it is his love that produces the experiential fruit. It's only his love that produces that. It is. That's what John 15, 1 to 5 is bringing out. You see it. Watch this. And as God brought this out, see? So what's so hard about obedience? Nothing. What's hard? The unsubmitted will. Because the simplest thing to do is to obey. Because the work's been finished in John 19.30. The work that was finished from the foundation of the earth in, in Hebrews 4 and verse 3. And then we can rest in it in Hebrews 4, 1 through 10. We can rest in what another has done. And there's no rest experientially until I rest where his love for me is being manifested. And it's a beautiful thing to see. But here, as we begin to wrap this up here this morning, here is bringing this, this is what it is bringing it out. In John the 15th chapter, verse 1, Jesus saying, I am. Now, when I love the scriptures. And the correlate, listen. <sighs> it, it, this is, it's all so woven together. It's also woven together, Scripture, is, one, is God's full thought. It, it's, you can't break it. It's so continuous. 
But when he says, I am here, that's the same I am in Exodus 3 and verse 14. I am what I am. Remember there, and Moses was asking two questions, and these are the questions, and they can be legitimate, and they're only legitimate when they're entreatable, and they're entreatable when we're asking without irritation, because remember, is there any suspicion in love? No, no, God's not suspicious. He knew what was in man in John 2, 24 and 25. He didn't commit himself to man. He committed himself to his father. He knew what was in man. He wasn't suspicious. He already knew it. Why do you think he said to them in John 13, 19 and 14, 29, I tell you these things before they come to pass, that when they come to pass, you might believe. <laughs> he knew it all. He is the Alpha and the Omega in Revelations 1, 8, 11, and 17, and 22, and verse 13. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's our beginning, and he's our eternal end. This is incredible. It's amazing. He said, and the two questions... Remember Moses, you know, and God had to bring Moses finally in his life. Here, you want to talk about a late bloomer. I consider myself at 70 years old to be an extremely late bloomer. But my friend Mike said to me, well, he said to me, at least you're blooming. <laughs> I mean it, at least you're blooming. And Moses was, had, was 80 years old, basically, his, his first 40 years was what God did, and then he took what God did and thought he could do it without God. That was his first 40 years. His second 40 years were because he, he tried to do what only God could do in him without submitting his will. He did it on his own. He flew. He took off. And for 40 years, he went to the backside of the desert for 40 years. Now he's 80. That's when, that's when God appeared to him. That's when God appeared to him. That's when he appeared to him out of the burning bush and said to him, and then when he spoke to him, Moses asked two questions. And these, listen, these are the questions we always ask God. We reverse them, though, most of the time. We do. Who am I? <laughs> who am I? You see that in Exodus 3, 11 to 14. You're going to see it there. He said, who am I? In other words, what is he saying? You know what, God? What am I all about? I fail. I have times of success. I fail. I mean, you know, who am I? Basically, he's saying, I can't make sense of me. I, I, I can't make sense of me, God. Who am I? Who am I? And the second question that he asked is, who are you? Because when he said, okay, you want me to go and tell them, but, you know, you need to tell me who I am so I can tell them. Basically, Moses is asking for himself. Tell me, who are you? Who are you? And his answer to those two questions in Exodus 3 and verse 14 was this. The answer is this. I am who I am. I am who I am. And you know what that I am is? In Romans 8.31, and in Psalm 56 and verse 9, I am for you. I have completed through my son, through me giving him to you, giving him to myself first in Genesis 22 and verse 8 in propitiation, and then in being propitiated, dealing with the sin question, he's now free to offer him as a substitute for whosoever will receive the fact that he paid for their sins. He not only died for them, he died as them and paid for their sins. And that's, he said, who I am. I am for you. I am for you. And the enemy wants to remake the old man because when we function in the old man, ultimately we think God's against us and we blame him for everything. We'll blame him for everything. And he loves us. And he loves us. And so when it says here, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And my father is the husbandman. He's the gardener. And every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. 
Notice that? Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, meaning he prunes it. You know what happens when there's a dead limb on a tree and others are producing fruit and he cuts it? It can be painful, can it? In Hebrews 4.12, the word of the Lord is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul Soul, self-conscious living, apart from God, from Christ, God-conscious living. It even goes into the sacrifice. You know, that's what makes sense in Hebrews 4.12. It goes right back into the sacrifice that Christ was. And cut it up as much as you want. It's absolutely pure. There's no spot in him who offered himself. In Numbers 19, 1 and 2, and in Exodus 12, 1 to 13, there's no spot in him. And that's why you and I in him... In Song of Solomon 4 and verse 7, you're all fair. You're, you're beautiful in him. There's no spot in you. No spot. And because of that, his desire in Song of Solomon 7 and verse 10 is continually towards us. <laughs> right desire in Psalm 37 and verse 4. Not wrong desire. So as we wrap it up here uh, this morning, we see this, that he prunes it, he cuts it. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, experientially, because positionally you don't change it, and I in him, the same brings forth what? Much fruit. Now, now you'll know that there's false prophets in Matthew 7 and verse 15 that, produce, that actuates the flesh, even in believers. Bad teaching, wrong, te- wrong teaching. Actu- actuates the flesh, that's all it can do. Can't affect positional truth, but God forbid that I should not know it. And then it says, you'll know them by their fruits. Can a, can a good tree bring forth evil fruit? And an evil fruit, uh, evil tree bring forth evil fruit? No. That's Matthew 7, 15 to 20. You'll see it in there. So here it says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Right? Except it abide in the vine in Christ. No more can you except you abide in me. Oh, I wish the Lordship Salvation crew could hear this. Our fruit is from him. That is Hosea 14 in verse 8. And I'm a late bloomer, but God reminded me again, Ed, listen, it's not too late. You know what the enemy constantly tells me? It's too late. It's too late. No, and you know what his answer is? It's Psalm 92 in verse 14. They will bring forth fruit in their old age. Oh, God, thank you. To redeem the time in Joel 2, 25. To redeem the time in Ephesians 5 and verse 16. I in him, and the same brings forth what? Much fruit. Fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. For without me, apart from me, severed from me, not positionally, but experientially, you can do what? Nothing. And when love is not my experience, the enemy convinces me in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, you're nothing. And you need profit in here. Let's replace it with this thing, with that thing. With drugs and sex and alcohol. I don't care, whatever it is. We said the other day in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, it says he said eternity in the heart of man. And when you study that in the Hebrew, he created every single one of us with a big hole that only he can fill and try and put anything in that hole that's not of him. As a Christian, try it. It'll never satisfy you. Lust will only be the thing that you can function in and lust is insatiable, meaning it will never be satisfied because God will never allow the Christian to be satisfied in the flesh because the Father's satisfaction is the Son and propitiating him, and thus reconciling us to himself. And and even Christ, he loves us so deeply, he will never be satisfied until every form and trace of fear is done away with. Because as he is, in 1 John 4, verse 17, so are we in this world. And that's why his love for us, the energy and power of his love, is the only thing that can cast out fear into us. Because fear has torment, torture, kalesis in the Greek, K 
K-O-L-A-S-I-S. It's fear, it's torture. And he wants to torture through making, remaking again the old man and the experience to gain control so that there won't be the submission and have the love, the energy, and then the purity of it. And then in purity, in Titus 1 and verse 15 of Philippians 4 and verse 8, to the pure, all things are pure. Meaning, I can see all things, whether they're pure or not, but only through the eyes of God. Because he never, in Job 36 and verse 7, he never removes his eye from the righteous. And Christ is our righteousness in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. And thank God, anything outside of that in the Christian is what they're not of. It's the flesh in one in, in, in one thirty-one of Second Corinthians. And so here as we close, in verse six it says, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. And how that enemy who is a lying bastard and a bastard's the product of an illegitimate relationship, one who doesn't have a proper relationship, one who doesn't have a father. And we have him. We're not bastards. And the chastisement, his loving chastisement, in Hebrews 12, 6 through 8, 7 and 8, proves that we're not. If a man abides not in me, is cast forth. How many Christians are burnt and told you nothing more than a withered branch? You're saved, but right now, that's all you are. No. Verse 7. If you abide in me, this is experience based upon position, and this has to do with will. The If there's the will, submit. Which, which, which power? Power of a lie? Or the power of truth, grace and truth in Christ. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will, and it will be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified. How? that you bear much fruit. How do we bear much fruit? Based upon his much more love. Read it in Romans, the fifth chapter, in those 21 verses. Watch the flow of it. Our standing, our position in Christ. How, how uh, this love makes not ashamed. Uh, the, 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 nothing makes us ashamed because the love of God is poured out without measure in us. And it goes into right where that love was poured out in 5.6, when we were without strength. In 5.8, when we were active sinners. And not only that, in 5.10 of Romans, when we were active enem enemies. And the enemy, the enemy, Satan, wants us to join him in the flesh as an enemy against God. Well, thank God. There, herein is my Father, in John 15 and verse 8, herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so, so that you will be my disciplined learners. Where does proper fruit, proper fruit is based upon having positional truth taught, but then much fruit enters into the experience. See, it's one thing to be able to declare biblical truths, Unchangeable truths. It's another thing to experience them. It's experience, you see, and that's submitted will. And so herein is my Father uh, glorified that you bear much fruit, so you'll be my Mathedes. Mathedes in the Greek is my continual pu pupils. And to be a continual pupil, you need a continual teacher. And that teacher is God the Holy Spirit given us. And he comforts us in John 14, 16 with the truth. Now because he's in us in John 14, uh, 17, now that he's in us and we have that unction, which is the Holy Spirit, in 1 John 2, 20. And thank God we don't have a need that just any man in 1 John 2, 27 teaches us. Because any man can teach us anything other than God, than Christ, than positional truth. And then if it's not proper positional truth, that enters into my experience. And if it isn't Christ in some area of the flesh, I get burnt. Men gather them. False teachers gathering men unto themselves. They're not for you. No matter what they may appear like, they're an angel of light, and they're reflecting in that area their father in 2 Corinthians 11 
14 and 15, so we're going to wrap it up. John 15, verse 9. As the, listen to this. Listen to this beauty. This is going to John 1, verse 1, and the reason for 1, verse 14 of John. But here's 15, uh, 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And everything from the enemy is against God's love for us. And for each other. And why do why what makes forgiveness so necessary in relationships in the local assembly? Because forgiveness is experiencing once again his love that doesn't change. It's a powerful energy. How powerful is it? How powerful is it? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And this is my desire, Jesus says to his church, to each of us as individuals, continue in my love. You, you, you as an individual, you, who my love is one. By the way, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we're not our own. The enemy wants to convince us through remaking the old man and the experience that we are our own. No, we're just owned by him and our will's been captured. And when he captures our will, that hasn't been submitted. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 26, he uses it in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 25 to oppose ourselves. Why? Because God's for us. God is for us. And God for me doesn't even matter who's against me. And this I know when I cry out unto God, when my enemies come in, the enemy of doubt, fear, worry, sin, and I fail. I can't get victory. Psalm 56, verse 9, when I cry out unto God because of my enemies, this I know. He shows me every time. Oh, God is for me. He's so for me in his powerful energy. God giving us his very nature. And of course, it has to be continual and never end because God has always been. So, Father, we thank you as we finish this this morning. If you keep my commandments, which is just what? Love. Love. Love, what is the commandment fulfilled in? What is it? It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And you won't love anyone else if you don't have God's love for you. And abide in his love. How do we abide in, what does it mean to abide in his love? We've been accepted in the son of his love. That's Ephesians 1, 6 and Colossians 1 and verse 13. We've been transliterated out of the kingdom of darkness positionally and been transmitted and placed into the son of his love, the original says in Colossians 1 and verse 13. This is my commandment then, that you love one another as I have loved you. Right? What does that mean? He performs in his love for me in Job 23 and verse 14 the thing that he requires. His love for me, when I submit to it with my will, produces the obedience in me that Christ has fulfilled. And then no more false reasoning of the flesh in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. That's my commandment. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And believe me, we are closer in intimacy with each other than just friends. I don't know about you, and I'm going to close with this. I don't know about you. I have friends. I have some deep and, and loving friends, like, the, like you men right here, that are necessary in my life as joints that God uses to supply me with. Even with your questions. Even with your questions, he will open up teaching, not just to all of us, but to me. I have friends, and they're close. And David had friends that would risk their lives to give him a cup of cold water. But I know one thing. In the intimacy of my relationship with my wife, when I go into my bedroom and close the door, my friends aren't coming in. Because it's the most intimate, pure relationship. And that's why we are far more than friends. Far, far more. And that's why in Proverbs 17 and verse 17, that kind of a friend 
sticks. A friend is born for adversity. And there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And that is the friend that's born with that life, that love, that energy, that purity, that love. That is the, the active energy of God's nature. And out of that comes light, that purity. We have pure relationships, pure, pure. And thank God for the purity of that relationship that's ours in Christ and that we have for each other. And so thank, I'm so thankful. And thank God, and I, uh, maybe we can do this one on Thursday, if God has it. When Jesus was saying to his disciples in Matthew 13 and verse 15, there are eyes that see and down through those verses. There are eyes that see and don't see. There are ears that hear and don't hear. But he said in 13, 15, and Matthew, blessed are, I, are your eyes for you see. And blessed are our eyes when we see how Christ has glorified his Father and then given us in John 17 and verse 22 that glory and given us that capacity and that glory so that we can see the God-man's glory in John 17 and verse 24. And what a beautiful thing that is. And Father, thank you that it is only your love that produces that fruit experientially in us and not fleshly legalism, not the do's and don'ts of the false lies of natural fallen religion. Thank you, Lord. You're not a God of religion. You're not a religious being. You're not a God of religion. You're a God that desires intimate relationship. And Christ himself has, has done away with all that distance between each one that's in him, between him and the Father. And that's why he said it in John 20, verse 17. I'm going to my Father and my God in terms of his deity, yes. But in his humanity with us, I'm going to your Father and your God. And thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.